0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Fearon, co-author with Peter Vale of the digital book on Practice as a Way of Being. Find it at mylibrary.world. Now to our show. Welcome to another conversation that I love having with my son, Dave, about social inaction writ large. And what we do in this conversation is review this, some of the stages of Dave's thinking and my learning about social inaction and particularly conversation as it pertains to practice. And then he takes us to an example of another dimension of his work and the work to understand the fullness of conversation called conversation analysis so there's more to learn and thank you for joining us Dave and dad welcome to another conversation that I love having with my son Dave about social inaction writ large and what we do in this conversation is review the Some of the stages of Dave's thinking and my learning about social inaction and particularly conversation as it pertains to practice. And then he takes us to an example of another dimension of his work and the work to understand the fullness of conversation called conversation analysis. So there's more to learn And thank you for joining us, Dave and Dad. Well, I know that you people out there have been waiting and waiting for the day that I have a Dave and Dad episode to add to the mix. And yes, today is the day that we will create the episode and then soon after it'll be available. Uh, Dave and I started talking about social inaction and looking within that to conversation and the connections to practice. In fact, we even looked at conversation as practice at one point. What we have done in recent time is looked at the uh, essentially the engine of practice, which is the brain and everything connected to it that constitutes a conscious human being. So looking at what works and what and why is a kind of a big open question for a whole bunch of researchers. But we're looking at it particularly in regard to how it creates a social effect with two or more people are communicating and it's forming or continually forming an organization. So welcome back, Dave.
1: Thank you. <laughs> and uh it was a busy fall, and I wanted to wait until I prepared a few things for our next podcast. And of course, I didn't. So,
0: yeah, well, they chip off the old I, block.
1: <laughs> I have prepared for almost an hour, so.
0: But <laughs> well, we'll we'll do another one for another half an hour. But uh, where would you like to pick up the thread?
1: Well, I wanted to. Um, I, a lot of what I've been doing, building up through quite a few episodes now, as I look back was trying to take us from the early conversations where we were trying to define social inaction and and the idea that conversation exists as something special, um, as it's almost its own domain or domain or, or, or world in which we as conscious beings reside and and mm-hmm get the world done and it's something distinct about being a a human being capable of using talk and interaction Mm -hmm. that both distinguishes us from other animal species but as we've gone through in recent episodes I've kind of systematically building up that we aren't all that different from other animals in that there are some real core principles of what it is to be alive and yep. made up of countless living systems all stacked together yep. in such a way that being a human being capable of doing talk is an extension of complexity based on some very core principles that mm-hmm. in some episodes we've gone right back into into um, quantum, <laughs> the- quantum theory and such, which yeah. Was, we won't start there, but we we uh, dabbled or you dabbled and I listened, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, getting into the brain. So I might like do a quick, super quick tour through what leads us there and then going to dive back into um, a, a real example of conversation um, that I think we looked at in more than one spot. I'm seeing episode 150, I think, is where we really went through it. With Deanna. Was that the one that I, this is actually one from back from my um dissertation um, oh yeah at uh meeting notes yeah uh, or, or, or re, not meeting notes but a the beginning of a of a business meeting mm-hmm. in which um um group of people are putting items on a, a meeting agenda mm-hmm. and we'll look at that pulling in um just a couple of both some core uh, a core way of analyzing um conversation that, that I studied um in, in grad, uh, graduate school called conversation analysis and maybe dipping in a little bit into another aspect I study social bond analysis although I think I won't get too much into that but kind of put you know stack everything up that goes into what makes this little moment of time work yep. um, in the context of what we've been talking about so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might throw in a couple other uh, uh, areas of sociolinguistics and basic linguistics that, that you could kind of start pulling pulling out from under the hood um, uh, uh, to give uh, a sense of what, how this, all this works. So, it reminds me, you pull out a wire and say, now, where
0: did this go? How do we put it back in? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Something like
1: that. <laughs> yeah um so let's see if we go let's try to in, in less than 10 minutes go through about six or seven episodes and summarize those but um basically when we're talking about the term social inaction, going back i, I usually cover this in every episode the the idea of an action um, is a term that now has, is being quite broadly used um, in other mm-hmm. fields, but I've started defining um, about 20 or so years ago, social inaction as a particular term with an action using the definitions of, of to perform, looking at perform or performance of a particular sort of action. This is a performance, especially for others, other people. And what this does is brings forth a domain of performance, so the enacted domain, um, context, um, area of action, but again, focusing on actions with others. Mm -hmm. Um, And those others can be specific others in interaction that you're interacting with. Um, but maybe more generalized others. What is the social world in which and in, in which uh, we're we're embedding these contexts?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the third meaning of a, of an act is is to warrant like almost a law like sense that yep. by having performed something and having brought forth the context for that performance, the participants in interaction can warrant their immediate next actions against that prior performance. Mm-hmm either specifically or even ab- ab- more abstractly, all performances, all having both lived lives in a social world, um, the, we get a sense of what one ought to do now based on what's happened before immediately, but also what we as, as language users and, and, and uh, uh, participants in our culture in which we grew up, and which I would assume you and I both had in during oh, yeah. our conversation. With yep. share, and so being able to, to, to warrant what we're doing and account for it in that shared domain. Yeah. Um, yep. Both specifically and abstractly. And what that does is it sustains both the immediate performance of talk and its own contextual domain moving forward. In this yep. sense of sustaining and moving forward is going deeper into a sort of theory of everything behind mm-hmm. an action which <laughs> is to claim that it is grounded in uh what's i, I think most commonly termed self-organization systems theory mm-hmm. um so i had several episodes building up from uh the basis of that um episode i think our episode numbers are correct but they, they may have shifted back on the website currently you'll see episode 162 um i talked about um Ilya Prigogine, who yeah. um, talked about how any sufficiently complex system can get to a point where it's sustaining itself by exporting or dissipating entropy. Entropy being um, the uh, interactions which could potentially destroy the that that organization. Uh, but you, but you can even think of entropy in information terms as yeah. as what would be a too much of a perturbation to be for its parts to be able to fit themselves together um mm-hmm. and um, i might have touched upon um some of the areas that built off of that namely um auto theory mm-hmm. by alberto um materana and francisco valera um being one of the ones in the 80s who kind of turn that more into a, a, a way of describing living systems in particular as being doing mean, just what I talked about by their action, bringing forth a domain in which they're actually reproducing themselves mm-hmm. while also um, defining the, the environment or context in, in which they live. Um, and this is a way of approaching um, uh, even evol- evolution, you can really think of such living systems as now having the capacity to evolve in a, in a certain way and be sustained and and looking at how the action sustains itself so mm-hmm. in episode 171 i talked about gerald edelman yeah. and looked at neuroscience and his yeah. work in the um 80s and 90s um looked at um how the um Neurons in the brain, but most importantly, their connections by axons um, into you know the bundles and structural regions of the brain.
0: Yeah,
1: are doing something in particular. They're mostly, uh, in summary, they're sort of relating sensory and motor parts of the brain, the the outside world, and what one does about it. But not simply the old behaviorist notion of stimulus and response, in which the the remembered. Uh, response to how one uh, interacts with something that we sense calls out like a reflex of particular action It's more this self organizing emergence. Each, each of these bundles and patterns become emergence, emergent self organizing ways of persistently dealing with perturbations in the world by um, persistent methods of sensory motor relations that are laid down in the very axons of the brain systematic ways but that are not static they have mm-hmm. to work to survive yeah. and, it, and then they change and they redirect and and the axons create new new patterns of of a, almost unimaginable complexity what <laughs> brilliance of different <laughs> yeah. connections but but what it does is it gives you still somehow brains that if you open them up are largely organized in similar ways among people but in the details are utterly unique but yeah the the main thing is this this dynamics and i talked in episode 191 about mark solmes um, who, who wrote mm-hmm. a terrific book on the basis of conscious consciousness and conscious awareness um having to do largely with something very particular about what goes on in the brainstem in which there is a essential coordination of feelings, um, which are you know, kind of the raw, rawest form of what becomes kind of more complex emotions, always being at the basis of bringing together the um, sensory motor relationships and the learned with the novel in a way yeah. that brings forth the actual experience and feeling of what it is to be aware of this thing in the world um and in terms of uh that kind of go back to this autopoesis theory one of the problems which I won't get into the philosophical problem of mind is that where is the observer where does the observer come from how what is it to be conscious the kind of the hard problem of consciousness what yeah. is it to experience the color red or to to know that I am I and not someone else, um, yeah. you know, the Descartian dilemma. So this really gives some concrete ways of explaining, if you tie it to all this self-organizing systems dynamics, how the observer is kind of fully explained as emergent from these very acts, because right. you've accounted for a lot of the parts. Right. You're not leaving something out necessarily where you have to add something magic to make um the conscious sauce in what is otherwise a bunch of neurons firing. Yeah. Because consciousness becomes a core definition of any living system that does social uh that does organization in this particular way. Mm-hmm. And I got into, um, episode 194, I talked about Carl Friston, which, which, um, from which, uh, um, drew heavily in his book, um, Carl Friston kind of, um, consolidated a lot of, um, the early work on self-organization, including Prigogine and others, um, and talked about the free energy principle, um, which is a way of this talk, doing what we talked about, um. Um, in terms of um, information theory um, in which we can think of information not just as like you know computer sense or words that have a meaning and if i understand them i'll understand the meaning more like this this idea of flow um Mm -hmm. and the ongoing achievement of a self-organizing system so if and, and a key part of that is is in this kind of the sensory motor relationship, there is one of prediction. Mm, modeling. Yes. So that a successful self-organizing system is able to be organized in such a way that in effect, it is a modeling a domain of the world that allows a prediction of what ought to happen next based on... Not just a memory, but really, in a sense, it's its own organization in which all its parts are only there because they have worked before, but in this recurring pattern, there's also always necessarily an opposition of being ready for adapting to something new because the world is always going to be throwing perturbations at you. So that's right. So, uh, this, uh, this notion of free energy is a way of defining, um, the, uh, I guess you could use it to define the information potential of, of, of a living system at the moment in which the more free energy there is, the more surprise there is in the world, the more, (laughs) the things that weren't predicted are there.
0: I think we uh, got so a we few of those going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, so he defines free free energy. Um and and the idea is to reduce free energy, um, which what Prigogine would call um um dissipating uh, excess entropy um in order to uh, adapt to the world. And um, one of the key um concepts there, which I wish I had known known twenty years ago when I was working on this was was the Markov blanket. Yeah. The way of describing a systems dynamics that um, solves a lot of problems with um, more simple ways of describing systems. Um, That that's I don't know. In summary, it's 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 a it. If you have a very simple kind of circular system. In which all the parts are doing are are related in such a way that they're acting towards the world. There's it's hard to get this sense of well, how do you both have this core set of relationships and also something that acts like an observer um, and is somehow this uh, this this different than the causal relations? Um, Mm -hmm. There are causal relations in which it is in the world, and it's this idea of Markov blanket gives is is where you have this surface which is called the parent and it is made up with of core components called children and as long <laughs> as those core components successfully interact then the kind of the the parent surface as a whole plus its children are sustained um and that's a very broad way of saying it but but basically you can then start looking at um interactions among Markov blankets and such where two Markov blankets, let's call them two people in interaction, are um acting as observers of each other and, and the kind of the the distortions of each each other's surfaces, while underneath that blanket are core things of which we are not aware, busily yeah. sustaining what they do. Yeah to keep everything going and adjust to changes and, 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 and make predictions and, and keep those sensory motor relations going. Wow! So, and that can be used to, to kind of explain a lot of what the brain does and in an episode 200, I threw in little Ian McGilchrist who talked about hemispheres <laughs> <laughs> in which you have like the left half of the brain is largely focused on the immediate task and categorizing the world and focusing on, on, opportunities and and what one needs to do at the moment but you have an entire other half of your brain that's focusing on context yeah making sure no one sneaks up on you while you're eating your dinner uh, (laughs) to attack you um becomes a a essential um uh feature of of all animals almost down to to worms and and Mm -hmm. and and amoeba almost but Mm -hmm. but in the brain it it kind of um, it gives you a constant, literal interaction. We can almost think of them as mutual observers of each other, mm-hmm. um, interacting with different aspects of the world in kind of a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And if, when, if, and when such that corpus callosum that connects the the two hemispheres is. Is cut um, either deliberately or, or by stroke or something. You end, up, you end up with two cells and two very different cells doing very different things. I remember that. That was yeah, so fascinating. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a a side note, but it kind of gives a sense of of this layering of stacks of complexity that gets us to where we are when we look at you know what's underneath the hood of of talk and interaction and so and social interaction. And then in in leading up to where we are now in episode 224, I started talking about George Herbert Mead and the social act. Yeah, we came back to George. Yeah, which is 100 years ago. He did work on uh, nicely articulating what I I like to think of is as um, a way of looking at action as precisely this um self-organizing social inaction and also one i think we could kind of focus on the conscious experience yeah The act as the enacting the conscious experience of of addressing the world not as stimulus and response but as something that becomes begins with impulse which is in always emotions always feeling that that solmes would say literally is a spark of consciousness at any at any second. Which builds into perception um, and manipulation. Both perception becomes the the predictive um, approach to the world, which he says is calls meaning meaning mm-hmm. of objects in the world, which is act of distinction, but always one in which there is manipulation. How one would act towards that object, giving you sensory motor relationships. That leading to a consummation, which is kind of an evaluative stage of the act. If it makes it to the end, you know, you get you grab your apple, you eat it. Yep. And there's an evaluation of how well it went. And that kind of feeds into into the predictive modeling of the next action. Yeah. That's basic to all animals. But then in the last time we talked, episode 231, I took it to where me does the next level. What is a social act? Uh, he pointed out there's something very special about the calls of animals, the animals that engage in social interaction with each other, herds, um, two dogs meeting each other. One growls. Mm-hmm. The other on the basis of that growl knows. Wags the tail. What might happen afterwards? It might be an attack. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be things that you can do. <clears throat> having anticipated that to you know, wag the tail, to to indicate that you're friendly. You're not going to attack back, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, you, of course, sniff the butt. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, so, uh, but something about these vocal gestures, the ones that we can hear echoing back into our ears, Mead says becomes the basis uh, of abstracting uh, one level of distinction of the world in which we're kind of um, uh, uh, using this basic consciousness of, of uh, the, the um, objects in the world that we immediately encounter um, and adjust to to a next level, a distinction of a distinction that becomes the social act and is abstracted into what we would call a symbol mm-hmm. or as symbol. But everything we talked about we talked about this a lot the last time it's not symbol as um the something that is now the container of instructions of actions Mm -hmm. but rather the symbol the abstracted language symbol is something that is could itself be thought of as living systems living systems interacting with each other put together into words put together into conversation Mm -hmm. um in which they're they are both um Very persistent among a culture, so that we can keep using words that that live for um, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But also want words that drift in their meaning and and uh, new words, novelty that can also pertain to novelty within the situation itself. Um, mm-hmm. And so so and then I kind of threw in a bit on, on the social self, the I being this first level experience, and then the me being this social object mm-hmm. um, that we can talk about and experience um, mm-hmm. with specific others who we might be interacting with and generalized others who are the expression of of all of social culture and history in which we, which we live. So that might've been more than 10 minutes, but-
0: No, it's, it wasn't too much more, and it was a wonderful synthesis, which uh, I might take this segment out and put it up there as an intro to the whole system of of your thoughts. Uh, I I have to tell you before we move on that if I were looking at this strictly as your practice, one of your practices, how you have the sense of where I started, what worked out, and where I am now, that, that sort of a, a lineage of memorable parts of otherwise your interest in, in social inaction it's a pretty good example of what it takes to sustain an interest this long from way back to your doctoral days to this moment uh, and I've in the, the familiarity that I now have with the people and of thought leaders you've brought in and your own thoughts it it constitutes at this point a story of uh of you as a person who thinks you haven't all the time in the world to do it but when you're thinking about social inaction it triggers out all of these these memories and yet it is being put out here in this moment with a purpose which is to inform and and educate so
1: yeah, but the, yeah but the what i found exciting about where we started um, probably over two years ago with our mm-hmm. conversations and now having gotten back into it, having, having let it um, go foul for 10 or more years mm-hmm. while I was trying to actually get a career going um, Oh yeah, is that where back then it was, I was trying to put something together from disparate parts that I've been talking about that were all new and, and, and haven't really come together. Now I think they have, and now it's like you know this is now a, a big core of neuroscience is is based on self-organization, free energy principle, and right. all of that, and 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 bring back biology um, and all those parts. And there's there's a, a lot of popularity, even on YouTube. You can it's like essentially YouTube stars who are researchers and philosophers doing doing this work. And I, I've talked about some of them. And I'll yeah. continue doing yeah. more shows on them, like the Emma Gilchrist, for example. But mm-hmm. um, what's interesting, and I still haven't found it, is that I haven't found anyone looking at conversation in the way that I learned with conversation analysis and some of these social linguistic uh, approaches to then bringing it to, to, the, to this. So I'm going to talk about uh, one person who happened to be at uc santa barbara when i was as a professor um who who lo and behold was in the same direction um and i didn't know it at the time (laughs) um but but um but yeah it was all there but but it's i think it's only now that's starting to all come together almost as a new uh maybe something new and and um well i'll get into more of that later there's been arguments that where we were in a in the world of postmodernism, this is now metamodernism, and this perspective is part of it. And it's now- Metamodernism, you know, wow. yes, And it's defining our new age, but I'll get into all that later. Um, so all right so in our remaining time let's jump back then into some actual conversation analysis and i'll okay. talk a little bit just a little bit more into what conversation analysis is but then how to to, to rip it into this new um new uh domain of self-organization and social inaction um all right let me and and if we put this on youtube um we'll we will um show on screen um okay let me let me play this this is people's uh at at a uh, firm having a standard business meeting where they're coming uh kind of their weekly standing meeting where they're coming up with the agenda for their meeting um and i will play this and if we don't hear it we will there'll be a And edited pause where we figure it out. (laughs) Okay.
0: So anything you guys want to add or backup tapes and the microwave. Okay, Backup tapes and the
1: microwave Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. The transcript showing on screen now. and this um, is conversational analysis that you're showing us now, right? Yeah, th- what I'm showing now isn't, there's, there's actually a different sort of transcription, but, but basically the idea of conversational analysis is that we are looking very closely at the details of talk word by word. We we transcribe it in a particular way so that you can analyze it. Um, mm-hmm. And the um, conversation analysis um, just briefly was, 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 uh, uh, primarily developed by uh, Harvey Sachs, who was a um, sociologist and um, in, in did a lot of this early work in the 1970s. Um, mm-hmm. At UCLA, he was a student of um, um, Harold Garfinkel uh, and um which I won't get into, but, but it was another kind of a sociolinguistic um, approach to sociology that um, Harvey Sachs um uh, focused in on the real dynamics of conversation, how how it is put together in a way that the, some of the persistent features of or, of of um, talk in interaction are systematic in a way that makes him at the time think of of how um, this is something like. Uh, other persistent things in biology or neuroscience where, yeah. where because the, the way that two people are are interacting has these um, uh, persistent organized components that become constraints on what each other do and by virtue of those constraints um, one gets the emergent patterning of some very key things that make conversation work mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and a lot of conversation analysis is looking at some of the core parts and then expanding upon them and coming up with lots more aspects and types of these persistent patterns. Um, what they don't do, and I don't know if they still do, is they they kind of focus almost too much on the patterning um, and do not get too much into the theory uh, or understanding of uh, of how why there is such a patterning, and this yeah. is where, um, I yeah. think that, uh, all everything I've been talking about with with uh, inaction and self organizing system dynamics uh, uh, system dynamics pr- would predict exactly what they are showing, uh, and explains it, and shows why it must be, um, yep. in order for conversation to work. Um, so, um, with that little bit of of uh, over hyping, um, I think we can maybe look at a couple of these aspects. And I think I'll I'll just do it in terms of what uh, conversation analysis looks at some key parts. uh, One of the most key parts of conversation analysis is looking at turn-taking organization. Turn of talk. What the turn of talk is, is basically I talk and then you talk, or in this case, Laura talks. So anything you guys want to add or and then Natalie responds, backup tapes and a microwave. The basics of turn-taking is that um, the fact that one uh, turn of talk follows another, not just um, a pattern of stimulus and response, but it matters the organization of how things are adjacent to each other, for example. The very fact that uh, the very details by which Laura says anything you guys want to add, in the way that Natalie's backup tapes in a microwave fits right there, some of its basic structure is that, um, in the terms of a type question and response answer, is an emergent organization in which both parties can rely upon mm-hmm. structuring the content and meaning of what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. The structuring is very deep and, and calls out lots of other mm-hmm. aspects of it. And, and if we look at it closely, it does so in a way that has a certain elements that we've been talking about. Um, for example, prediction, you know, performance mm-hmm. and con- contextual domain brought forth and warranting things. and what I happened. see warranting coming up. Yeah. yeah, so so um, you know, how is it we know they know what they're talking about? Well, something's happened before. They're they're in a room. They're they they they're all having established that they're starting the meeting. There's an easel next mm-hmm. to them on which yeah. they have been writing the agenda of the meeting, mm-hmm. um, and having done that at this moment, Larga, say anything you guys want to add. Natalie's backup tapes in microwave because. Following in part that turn-taking organization can can refer to what became before and and perf, kind of perform a recognition uh, perform you know, kind of perform the grounds of what might be recognizable. Anything you guys want to add to backup tapes and microwave would refer to to add and okay. um, and be about the agenda and they both kind of can achieve uh, what. Harvey Sachs would call categorization Mm -hmm. without having named a category, in a sense, without that category even being a real thing, in the sense it's entirely Mm -hmm. implicit. Um, Is it in their brains? Yes and no, maybe not all that, maybe not all that specifically. In a way, we don't care what's in their brains, what they're doing is accomplishing the sustaining of this this reference uh, mm-hmm. across two turns of talk. And then you can look at turn taking in itself as being kind of this this structural, uh, almost a, a constraining context for all sorts of ways of doing things. Yeah. For example, uh, you asked me a question, and I answered, but my answer went on for 10 minutes. it was contained
0: many allow another turn to take place
1: so so what you did is we we in a a sort of uh unspoken agreement allowed our turn taking to go from from conversational turn taking to narrative or story Mm -hmm. so you're suspending your turn taking and if you look very closely at how turn taking is managed and and where it occurs and how it's suspended, you can almost look at uh, turn taking uh, units having their own, mm-hmm. you know, treatment. The very close use of pause, of intonation, or what's called prosody, the, mm-hmm. the period, the question, uh-huh, um, the tone of voice, all of which is is. Uh, meaningful at this, or or operative at this level of both organizing, sustaining the turn-taking organization of talk for that moment, but also providing this ongoing structure of sorts by which everything about talk can take place. And think of this, everything that we're conscious about, consciously aware of about talk, none of this structuring of these details matter nor can we even think about it while we're doing it because we're tripping over ourselves while we're trying to pay too much (laughs) how how we walk it's all in the background and so so turn taking is just one of them one of these um, some some other things that they um in addition to turn taking and narratives they look there's a lot of work on conversational repair we can kind of look at repair um Sorry, I'm kind of recycling very old slides that that uh, talk about, if anyone looks at the YouTube, to talk about um, some of these core concepts of performance and then bringing forth a domain of relevance. The uh, repair is, is a way of adjusting to perturbations in talk by doing something with one's words that show the other that there was something unexpected, unpredicted. Yeah. And showing that I am doing something about it or that one that you should do something about it or that um, maybe we're collectively doing something about it, something that's bringing back, for example, a repair of the turn taking. Uh, you've overlapped my speech. You didn't just say, huh, but you start talking over me. Well, we, we do something with our talk to to kind of get us back to that turn taking exchange. Mm. We're here with um Natalie says, uh, backup tapes in the microwave. And Laura says, backup tapes in the microwave? Um, in a way, is that a call for a certain sort of repair? Is Laura asking Natalie to repair something that came before in a particular way? Backup tapes in the microwave? We don't really know what it what it is. The problem? Do they figure out what it is? Backup tape, Natalie says, backup tapes in the microwave. Laura says, backup tapes in the microwave. Natalie says, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm comes in kind of a third section of uh a three, three, you know, three st- steps in this turn of talk, in which um Natalie's statement is followed up by a question. Mm-hmm is supposed to be the answer in the of the question. And the next turn of talk, what's it doing? It's kind of resolving a certain Thing perhaps that Laura brought up. Why was backup tapes in the microwave a question? Was it about what does she mean? Backup tapes in the microwave. What about micro backup tapes? backup tapes in the microwave. Well, with hmm, this kind of a, a repair of that being a question. The question being a simple confirmation of what she said. She didn't really treat it as though Laura had no idea what she meant at all, but that maybe this is a repair of a mishearing or something like that, or a confirmation that these are two items. And, and what's the overall context that these two things are talking about will be on the meeting agenda?
0: Or um, not, you know. Or not.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, you don't know, but you don't know. But so, they would have it, to negotiate that as the
0: turn taking continues. Exactly. So another repair might be in order. Yeah, yeah. So we have this, and this, this is all within like three seconds.
1: Yeah, it? yeah. So in, <laughs> you know, layer upon layer. Um, wow. So there's this repair, and there's and again, there's this this categorizing where the agenda has never been mentioned, and yet it's clearly a relevant constraint for the context in which they're doing. They're they're which are organizing their interaction. Um, in that sense, I think um, there's some terms in um, used by conversation analysis and also other areas of linguistics called indexicals, mm-hmm. uh, where you might use words such as um, uh, that. The word that will will point to something in particular in the in, in immediate surroundings or in what was said before. But there's also things that aren't said that are more implicit. Um, in which um, sometimes you'll see referred to as as like counterfactual. So, which in in, um, in linguistic analysis, I think, becomes probably, you know, taking linguistics into cognition becomes kind of problematic where people really have to rely, where, where theories that rely heavily on the brain being made up of models of the world in which, somehow every possible way of, of speaking about, every, every way of interpreting backup tapes in the microwave is somehow in their brains being invoked. So the counterfactual to backup tapes in the microwave might be, um, uh, you know, Laura doesn't understand what it is, or she doesn't, you know, is she, is she um, questioning the understanding of what these terms mean? why they were brought up, um, that they belong on the agenda, that they should be explained right now rather than later. And that's one Mm -hmm. interpretation that perhaps Natalie might've acted on. And perhaps that using a question right there might in other circumstances solicit. Solicit backup tapes in the microwave. The uh, implicit part is, what about them? And then Natalie might go on and then say the thing about them and why they need one, mm-hmm. but she's also evoked the agenda, and having done that, evoked the situation where they're going to talk about it later because it's a meeting and things on the agenda are talked about later. Um, so she can kind of rely upon that that um, implicit meaning as well, building up that context. And so you see Laura go on and say, you know, when she says backup tapes in the microwave, Natalie says, hmm. And then Laura laughs. Huh? Uh, are you going to put it up there so we don't forget? And then by up there, she was referring to the easel where they're writing their mm-hmm. their um, agenda items. Um, so, um, so that's a lot. You know, lots of bits and parts. But you can kind of see how um, you know the words aren't simply words, but you have to embed them in this turn-taking, in the way things are organized in this in this uh, way of 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 repairing things and, and, and even looking at Laura's laugh, backup takes the microwave. Laura, Natalie says, mm hmm. and Laura laughs. What's the laugh about? Mm -hmm. I talked in another podcast about maybe this is something that has to do with their relationship, their social bond. Yeah. Conversation analysis doesn't get into that so much, but I, I have a whole episode of that where let's say there was, let's say this was about, uh, Laura, wanting Natalie to explain right then and there what the um backup tapes backup tapes the microwave are about you know, rather than waiting for later in the meeting. Um but Natalie kind of socially correctly says, no, in a way, we will talk about this later because we're doing a meeting and this is an item on the agenda mm-hmm. in a way, Uh, what Laura had done was called Natalie to account for having these two new things to talk about and perhaps implications around it. The the notion of accounting for oneself, kind of warranting why, (laughs) what it is about these two things. Um, And already there could be some context of, well, the office needs to buy these two things. Uh, And why do we need a new microwave? You know, those can kind of be be starting to be meaningful aspects of what they're talking about but um should they be talked about here um right you know is is laura kind of overstepping some <laughs> relevant context and then has and, and maybe even um, altering in a very micro way the condition the immediate conditions of their social relationship in a way that brings mm-hmm. up Um, Something that we might have called elsewhere in the family of shame Mm -hmm. and how one uh, 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 responds to shame uh, and adjusts to it is using laugh, Mm -hmm. uh, which brings back kind of um, a a more um, normal uh, uh, laughter has a lot of functions. But in in a way, it kind of shows that the thing is unusual and yet, okay. yeah, (laughs) brings it back to and then and then she goes up and calls her through again to account for having brought these up and telling her to go and put it up, write it up on the agenda board. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a lot of complex social dynamics there we can get into, but, um, but you can see, so that's just a little bit of under the hood. And at no point are we thinking to ourselves, well, Laura has all these different interpretations going through her brain in an active dialogue. Um, We don't, you know none of that has to be done it's it says uh it's very efficient what's going on here by by, by on the basis of of everything we talked about so far working okay <laughs> at this moment um yep. Yep. To, make, to make this persistent way of, of organizing something that would be a, a business meeting a new yep. invention in the world that other animals don't have fortunately no uh, <laughs> to work and this is such a thing as an agenda and how you organize things to talk about later rather than right now yeah so, yeah layer upon layer
0: so much so much and and we looking at something that occurred in that clip for less than what three yeah. ten seconds maybe 10 seconds maybe yeah yeah and um, yet here we are as humans filling tens of millions of seconds with turns of talk with all sorts of others. And uh, not, most of us wouldn't have the slightest awareness of how many elements of our nature writ large go into what to say the next in the next turn. <laughs> yeah. As Laura could have said, that's too minor an issue. Look at these agenda items, they're all, major strategy strategic questions with a company and you want to put this nitpicking uh, backup tapes and microphones on that agenda you know i mean it it could change within seconds to something very difficult it could be upsetting to natalie and then yeah you know natalie would say well i thought you wanted to hear blah 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 so yeah yeah, a lot of things all that
1: has to be done all of that has to be accomplished and and maybe all that issue also comes later in the meeting rather yeah. than now, you know, because yeah. otherwise it disrupts what the meeting is. What is yeah. the meeting if it would be immediately launched into the guts of what's, what's the key, key thing, or do we actually wait, wait for later? Yeah. So, um, Good uh, stuff, in our, Dave. yeah, in our, uh, I'm sure we're over time, but, um, well, I'd like to just talk about one more thing uh, okay? because I, I mentioned him, uh, earlier, uh, for, Do you want um, to stay on the screen here? Okay, here we go. Yeah, ah. Here, I'll put this, this uh, John W. Dubois was, uh, I think he's still there. He may be emeritus by now at UC Santa Barbara. Um, he was in the UC Santa Barbara had a really n- a nice collection of, of people doing these areas of social linguistics uh, in which, in which I um, participated Um many of whom did not, talk to each other or work with each other nearly as much as they ought to have, being the conversation analysis, um, the social bond that I worked with, with Tom Sheff, and then um, Jack Dubois. um, There was plenty of interaction with linguistics, but one thing that um, I wanted uh, to just kind of give a plug for uh, Jack Dubois' work is is, um, because I attended a lot of talks that he gave on... I didn't end up working with him. I should have had him on my dissertation committee, but his work on um, what he called uh, dialogic syntax. Hmm. It is another really cool layer of, of ways of thinking of this organizing of turns of talk in the very details of context at the linguistics level that um, I think... Um, are underappreciated and then I was just looking at his 2014 um uh, book uh one of his 20 his latest articles on in 2014 and lo and behold he started talking about um self-organizing system theories and uh <laughs> and, and was you know I think kindred kindred spirits <laughs> that I realized yeah. at the time but he also, uh, he, I think his, his ideas are not nearly as popular as they ought to be, and I think partly he takes a long he took a long time between getting writing things and <laughs> getting it out there. But um, yeah, um, I think, and, and I'm, I'm only saying his ideas didn't get too far because I couldn't find a YouTube video. Where he talked, to him or other people talked. To him. I know. Well, so you that's the new coin of the realm. There you go. But in any case, uh, <laughs> I'll, in 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 a very short amount of time, let me try to get get the the notion because I think it ties in a few things we're talking about. So if we look okay. at this, the organization of these two terms: Natalie saying backup tapes in a microwave, and Laura says backup tapes in a microwave. The fact that Laura uses many of the same words is important it is a way of doing a particular sort of syntax which is the organization of words uh, in a way that that is um, both meaningful and and operative in keeping the in keeping the course of talk going forward the jack debaugh pointed out that what the, there's a, what he called a a uh Dialogic syntax means that doing this in dialogue in a particular way—that's kind of matching—is a special thing. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it is almost as though it's a little self-organizing system that um, is sustaining um, a shared meaning in a particular way. So, mm-hmm. the the way that Laura uses the same words but then ends with the prosody, the question rising backup tapes in a microwave, is doing something. It is um, showing that uh, it is about these two things. Not She could have just said, huh? Yeah, And that would not be very specific. She might yeah. have said, what do you mean? That also wouldn't be specific. What do you mean about backup tapes in microwave? That would yeah. be very inefficient. She's getting into lots of details. Instead it's very yeah. efficient to say, stack of tapes in the microwave use the same words and uh, almost the same except for one difference being the raising of the tone of voice yeah the question the intonation doing the work of of pointing out what is different in what in other what in other otherwise uh, confirms everything that is kind of the predictive model of using these two words and and he's calling this as a kind of a, a a structural coupling between these two turns of talk, using Sisquel's, mm-hmm. uh, uh term, which which uh, kind of echoes back into this kind of free energy Markov blanket motion, in which you have underneath the hood lots of little things uh, going on um, to to structure two turns of talk in a way that just what's novel and needs to be done. Emerges to the surface, like the surface of two um, Markov blankets, uh, in which now uh, she can become an observer of what Laura can become an observer of what Natalie just did. uh, And Natalie can be an observer of what Laura will do. Mm -hmm. What they observe is something that has emerged this question. And that Mm -hmm. goes on to become the basis of how Natalie will interpret, not just interpret in her own mind, but show the interpretation. It is bringing to the empirically available surface for both of them, what is enacted as the meaning uh, of both the difference, this, this repair, what it's about, how it becomes conscious in an actual social act that's carried forth um, and uh, lets us be consciously aware of just those details while everything else under the hood is happening at this level of which, um, like intonation becomes its own yeah. rhythmic sequence, conversational turns become their own little sequence. And underneath that, yeah. words and grammar, syntax, yeah. um, uh, you know, all, lots and lots, and then under that, all the brains and brains doing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then beyond that, culture and all that. Yeah, so
0: yeah, they're in an office, you know. Yeah, the, so you have these stacks of emergent the audiences. artifacts of the office are there. the The yeah. conference yeah. table they're they're eating.
1: Yeah, uh, so which you know all of that's going on in yeah, all that's going on at, at a the, glance. Or, yeah, but what's interesting about this, and it's what um, people studying the brain or cognition have are not able to do as well, is that there is this empirical surface so what um uh, uh Jack Dubois would would organize this a little bit differently if you look at some of his papers like it's one in 2014 he does this where he would map and map these words together um, to highlight that uh the question mark part of it but the mapping this is what he calls a diagraph, it's not it's not it is in a way the empirical analysis basis that a linguist would use to understand it but it's also how the people themselves understand things. Systems mm-hmm. <laughs> the themselves understand things. It's 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 kind of like the brain's cognitive organization of words that, that would highlight this difference mm-hmm. and allow adjustment to just this this difference in a very in that very efficient way. And again, it's the way that reduces the free energy of the situation rather than the question mark leading to chaos. Yeah. It's just going to focus down on the one thing that's different, reducing the entropy of the moment and keeping yeah. the conversation going um, in a way that everyone can still know what's going on. So this is wow. understanding <laughs> how it happened. Wow. It's wow. Abstract. It's It's. it's, it's it,
0: I think that I'll, I'll reinforce that point as we're, as we're coming to a close. Uh, it's It's there. It's fact. It happened, documented, and then you could look at it. You know every which way you can make a lot of suppositions or conjectures about it but really the purist would say let's just go back to the string of words and the other string of words and look how they match or, or don't but your work you want to take it further than that but there's a lot of people very happy to make sure that, that that the factual aspect or the empirical aspect of whatever they're presenting is is clear and it took you quite a bit of time to transcribe those and code them and all the rest but the result is you know a whole lot more than a lot of people do about what we're doing right now yeah talking <laughs> i'd love to be funded to spend more of my time <laughs> figuring out some I'm piece. going to, I'm going out to <laughs> the the grant sources immediately no i'm serious it would be lovely if you could spend more time on this but we have done a lot as you re- recounted in the beginning of this conversation and we'll do more
1: yeah there's lots of more areas we could take it into i've been reading a couple other people who could be and watching their youtubes about uh what we could kind of call other yeah. pillars of the emerging uh action point of view yeah um, one is uh john Verveke, who's um uh his title i believe he's a kind of a cognitive science but also maybe in the philosophy department I don't know in in Toronto University of Toronto Mm -hmm. terrific stuff on on uh, kind of taking it more into social sociology uh, areas but tying together a lot Um, uh, and then another person I I, um, read recently who who uh, um, who has taken this kind of an action emergence uh model and proposed that perhaps it could be a thought of as a type of um religion <laughs> <laughs> no uh of a very particular sort uh, and his name and I uh, shoot, I'm trying to get it in front of me is um His name is Brendan Graham Dempsey. There Um, you go. Very interesting guy uh, who, who uh, his book Emergentism, I I finished recently and he's done a, he's a young guy and done the remarkable thing of summarizing just about everything I've talked about, except for language in our podcast into a beautiful single book. Um, And uh, so we'll do an episode on him too.
0: All right, Dave. Well, thank you again. I, Look forward to our next episode. In the meantime, I've got a lot of thinking to do. You've got my head spinning again, as usual, but thank you. Thank you for listening to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. If you'd like to hear more, go to Automatic, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube, and please consider purchasing our book, On Practice as a Way of Being, at mylibrary.world. It's a digital book with lots of features that you do not see in a conventional book. So once again, thank you, and I look forward to you listening again.